I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to the latest of our We the People Constitutional Podcasts. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And this week we are talking about the constitutional and legal issue of the week, namely immigration at a legal crossroads. This week, a Texas district court temporarily blocked President Obama's latest immigration programs. And that opinion has set off a debate about the future of immigration. Judge Andrew Hainan of Brownsville, Texas, a U.S. district judge, ruled that the Obama administration's deferred deportation policy violates the Administrative Procedure Act and said that it should be put on hold until there's a full trial. The Obama administration will appeal the rulings. Some speculate the issue will percolate up to the Supreme Court. Uh, this is uh, a fascinating issue. It is um, complicated uh, and important. We are going to discuss the statutory and uh, other aspects, as well as thinking ahead to the constitutional challenges, which the judge did not rule directly on. And joining us to discuss these core questions are two members of our thrilling newly created coalition of freedom advisory board and thank you so much listeners for your great reaction to our podcast announcing the advisory board and to your many emails and suggestions for how we can use this wonderful uh, multi-partisan body to promote constitutional debate michael dorf is the robert s stevens professor of law at cornell university law school he has written over 70 law review articles and essays on constitutional law and writes the very popular and extremely illuminating Dorf on Law blog. Ilya Shapiro is a senior fellow in constitutional studies at the Cato Institute and editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Ilya has contributed to a variety of academic, popular, and professional publications, as well as coordinating Cato's amicus brief program. Uh, all right, gentlemen, let's jump right in. More than 60 pages of Judge Hainan's decisions were devoted to the technical question of standing. Standing involves the question of whether or not a particular party has the right or ability to actually raise a claim in federal court. It's technical, and we, we want to keep things as uh, uh, simple as possible. But, Mike, tell me what the judge's ruling on standing was and what its implications are. So the question of standing is whether the plaintiffs are themselves injured by the defendant's allegedly illegal action. And here, Judge Hainan said they were, that is to say the states were injured, because they will have to bear various administrative costs uh, associated with the temporary legal status of the particular undocumented immigrants benefited by the program. The one he focused the most attention on was the administrative cost of issuing driver's licenses. Um, that actually only takes up a few pages. There's then you know, about 55 some odd pages of discussion of other points, but ultimately he, he rests the decision on the issuance of the driver's licenses. Great. And Ilya, uh, the judge found that there was particular injury about the issuance of the driver's licenses. Tell us more about that and whether you think his standing ruling was correct. Uh, yeah, I, d I do think it, it was correct, uh, both in regard to the driver's licenses. That is, you only need $1 of damage to have standing. And uh, the judge found that uh, having to issue driver's licenses to all of these people that would get temporary legal status under the president's uh, deferred action plan, the, the DAPA, um, uh, would in, entail these costs for Texas, and I'm sure there will be other administrative burdens uh, as well. Notably, he rejected the claim that uh, DAPA would cause an influx of illegal immigrants that would also cause economic harm. 
uh, and uh, some uh, uh, people that, that support the government cited some, uh, some reports that Cato, my organization, put out uh, uh, showing that indeed illegal immigrants are a net economic benefit to the country, uh, which, is, which is fine, but nevertheless Texas and other states are still injured by having to uh, operate their bureaucracies and specifically here uh, the driver's license uh, issuance. So that is uh, kind of a summary, which I agree with, of the 60 pages of standing very thorough discussion. Great. Okay, well, let's get into the merits. As they say, Mike, the judge found that uh, the president's decision not to enforce immigration laws violated the Administrative Procedure Act because he didn't hold a notice and comment rulemaking uh, on his decision. Tell us more about that core of the decision, whether or not you agree with it. So to begin, the federal government does most of what it does through administrative agencies, right? There's Congress, there's the president, but then there's this gigantic federal bureaucracy. And uh, the federal bureaucracy acts in a variety of ways. It holds um, hearings, it issues enforcement decisions, and it also makes rules that implement existing legislation. The issue in the case was whether the uh, program that the Obama administration has offered is a rule subject to the requirement that the public be given notice and an opportunity to comment on it before it goes into effect, or whether it was mere guidance as the administration claimed. The government's position was that uh, we're not changing the substantive law, we're not creating any new rules that are subject to notice and comment, and so uh, we could just do it without first uh, holding these uh, these procedures. And the judge disagreed with that. Uh, he thought that it, uh, it fell on the rule side of the line rather than the guidance side of the line. Um, I'm not sure whether I agree with that or not. I should say that I'm not an expert in administrative law. Uh, you know, I know more about it than the person on the street, but it's not one of the areas I write or teach in. My understanding is that the line between what can be done through informal guidance and what must be done by uh, formal notice and comment rulemaking is somewhat murky. Uh, I could see a different judge having come out the other way on that particular issue, but I don't think Judge Hannon's resolution of this is unreasonable or outside of the bounds of what one typically sees in administrative law cases. Great. Well, Ilya, as, as Mike has described it, um, if something is a new legal obligation, it is subject to notice and comment, but if you're interpreting prior guidance and regulations, it's not. Uh, do you agree with the judge on this point? And then more broadly, um, w w what's the practical effect of this ruling? Because the administration can have a six-month notice and comment procedure, uh, and then the rule would be fine. Why, why put the administration through this process if, uh, if the thing is just going to be challenged as unconstitutional down the line anyway? Well, this is the narrowest way of, of ruling this way. You could, you could see an ultimate decision by the Supreme Court with John Roberts perhaps as the swing vote saying, uh, without even getting to these broader issues of whether the program is within uh, executive discretion, let alone the constitutional issues uh, that uh, come on administration go through the formal rulemaking procedure, and that effectively runs out the clock or nearly so on on this particular uh, administration not not having a sweeping ruling but in effect stopping the program. Um, we have to distinguish between what exactly is going on because this is not a challenge to the um, uh, deportation orders or lack of deportations. That is, Texas and the other 25 states aren't saying 
um, you know, U.S. government, you have to deport everyone without uh, discerning who is the greatest risk to national security or who's a criminal or who's a, uh, a drug smuggler or anything else. Um, you, you know, you can't prioritize uh, what in the criminal justice pers uh, context would be, say, murderers over jaywalkers. That's not what the challenge is about, um, and that's not what the most controversial uh, exercise of so-called discretion is here. It is the uh, offering of, of the granting of, of temporary legal status uh, to parents of citizens and parents of lawful permanent residents uh, in a way that the uh, statute uh, does not authorize. And indeed, uh, uh, parents of citizens can eventually gain lawful status, but only once their children turn 21 and they've returned back to their home countries for 10 years and then petition. So it's a very convoluted, burdensome process that Congress specifically uh, uh, put in. It wasn't just a, a smooth family unity sort of uh, argument. Uh, that might be getting ahead of ourselves here, but basically that, that is what the argument uh, over discretion uh, is in and why the ultimate uh, challenge, uh, uh, even on, uh, to, to the, any administrative uh, uh, procedure, um, uh, might look like. Um, Mike, the core of the objection is that the president uh, was failing to take care that the law is faithfully executed uh, by this deferred project. The judge did not rule on that constitutional claim, but there were aspects of the opinion uh, that talked about uh, whether or not he was completely abdicating uh, a decision or whether he was exercising adequate prosecutorial discretion. Tell us about your thoughts about the, the, the constitutional claim that the president's failing to take care that the laws are faithfully executed, and what, if anything, the judge's decision signaled about uh, the Supreme Court's likely disposition of that question. Let's break that down into two questions. One is whether the president in this uh, program is violating his duty to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. And then the second is whether the court was right to signal that um, if there is notice and comment rulemaking, he might say that you can't do it anyway because this is abdication. Uh, on the substantive question, uh, I do think there's a real issue here. Uh, nobody disagrees with the administration's contention that the president has some prosecutorial discretion. I, I agree with that. Ilya agrees with that. Judge Hannon agrees with that. Um, but the worry is that uh, Congress passes the law, the president enforces the law, and he has a duty to enforce it. Now, there are circumstances when the president can prioritize. So most of us think, although it's somewhat controversial, that a president doesn't have to enforce a law that he thinks is clearly unconstitutional. We saw a little of that with the Defense of Marriage Act a couple of years ago. Um, we all agree that the president can prioritize uh, given resource constraints. Ilya gave the example of murder rather than jaywalking. I think we all agree with that. Uh, the administration's internal memo by the Office of Legal Counsel tried to characterize this program as within the zone of prosecutorial discretion. And it seems to me that if it is within the zone, it's right at the edge of the envelope. Because I should say that as a liberal, I worry very much about future administrations uh, invoking prosecutorial discretion not to enforce the capital gains tax, not to enforce provisions of the Affordable Care Act that they don't like, and so forth, and saying they're just prioritizing. So I, I think there is a real worry, and it's a cross-ideological worry, that the president may be uh, in violation of that obligation. 
Now, as to whether a court can say anything about that, that's a much harder question. Part of Judge Hannon's opinion um, uh, addresses the question of whether a, uh, a court can reverse an administration for failing to act. There's a case in administrative law called uh, Heckler against Cheney that says that courts don't tell agencies you violated the law by failing to act, only by saying that they acted in some invalid way. Uh, and because of that uh, decision, which Judge Hannon gets around for the more limited purposes here, I think it would be much harder for a court to squarely hold that the president has failed to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. And you see that sentiment expressed in various Supreme Court cases, often by conservative justices. So Justice Scalia, in an important uh, standing case from the 1990s, says that it's the president's duty to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. The courts aren't supposed to interfere with that or enforce it. If you don't like it, there are political remedies. Ilya, what do you make of Mike's evaluation of the constitutional arguments that the president is failing to take care that the laws are faithfully executed? Uh, do you, in fact, think that he is violating the Constitution? And how do you think that uh, other courts and perhaps the Supreme Court will rule on that question? Well, I don't think the Supreme Court will reach it for the same reasons that uh, Judge Hainan uh, didn't reach it, because uh, the, the, the battlefield seems to be uh, this statutory slash administrative procedure act uh, area. That is, does the statute, the, uh, the operative statute, the Immigration Naturalization Act and subsequent amendments uh, grant uh, the president or the, the immigration authorities uh, so much discretion that, uh, that they can offer uh, deferred action uh, with all of its uh, additional benefits and bells and whistles uh, to uh, this class, this type and size of class of people. And what Judge Hainan found uh, in doing his analysis uh, pursuant to that case that, uh, that Mike mentioned, uh, Heckler versus Cheney, uh, about uh, whether uh, judges, whether courts can review uh, agency uh, inactions, uh, he said, well, here it's not so much inaction or a decision uh, not to prosecute or inadequate enforcement. It's, he says, an unannounced program of non-enforcement of the law that contradicts Congress's goals. This is actually very similar to what an analysis of the take care clause would look like because uh, the question is, is the president faithfully executing the law? Now, to be faithfully executing the law, that doesn't mean you have to execute all laws, uh, whether because of lack of resources or, as, as you mentioned, Jeff, uh, the president thinks that it will be unconstitutional to enforce perhaps some other reasons. Um, but uh, here, if you're looking at the question of, of good faith or, or being faithful, we have, for example, a, a long list of quotes by the president himself uh, along the lines of, I'm not a king. Uh, in our system, Congress has to change the law. I can't do it. Uh, and Judge Hainan quoted uh, one of those lines uh, uh, as well. Uh, and then he quoted a subsequent line a couple of days after the announcement of DAPA where President uh, Obama said uh, that, uh, crowed that he changed the law uh, and basically uh, said that we needed to establish facts on the ground so this would be difficult to change later on, which goes into part of the reason why Judge Hayden eventually put in uh, this injunction. And 
I will say uh, also, I, I should add, in interest of full disclosure, that I actually favor the underlying policy. I think we should liberalize our immigration system and change it and reform it in various ways to have it actually make some sense, to have some policy behind it. Uh, and I filed a brief uh, in this litigation on behalf of the Cato Institute and two law professors, Peter Margulies and Josh Blackman, who all support comprehensive immigration reform but feel that this uh, executive action uh, is against the law. That is an impressive divergence of your policy views and your constitutional views, uh, the, the status that we seek at the Constitution Center all the time. Mike, uh, do you agree with Ilya's take on the take care um, arguments? And uh, I also want to ask you about a, a, a provocative statement in your blog. You said the opinion is ideological in ways that I'll elaborate, and it may well be wrong. In, in, in what ways was the opinion ideological and wrong? Okay, so I, I agree with uh, a lot of what Ilya said. I'm also somebody who thinks that uh, comprehensive immigration reform is a good idea, and I'm troubled by the administration's doing it uh, through executive action. I think, as I say, I think it comes up to if, doesn't, if it doesn't cross the line of what you can do through prosecutorial discretion. I, I, one place I, I might, I'm not sure if I disagree, but I'd say I'd, I, I would see things a little differently, is I, I regard the president's uh, political rhetorical statements about how I can't do this because I'm not a king and then, hey, look, I changed the law as, you know, all irrelevant, right? That these are designed for certain constituencies. The real question is, what has he done, not what has he said? Um, now, what do I mean when I say that the opinion is political? Uh, I, I mean that there are sort of little nuggets in the opinion, uh, sort of uh, dog whistles to anti-immigration constituencies to say, hey, I'm, I'm with you. So for example, the, the judge says, I'm gonna refer to these people as illegal aliens and illegal immigrants. Footnote, I know some people find this offensive, but the Supreme Court has done it, so I can do it too. Um, reference to self-deportation, which is not a term in the law, it's a term that's used by people who are opposed to uh, various forms of um, uh, illegal immigration. Um, and and, and that, that's, that's what I meant, that, 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 the, that you know, I, I think the opinion is overall defensible on a lot of points, but I think some of that rhetoric actually tends to undermine its credibility. Uh, as to why I think it very may, may, way, very may well be wrong uh, is, it, is this point about Heckler against Cheney. That is, I, I do think that for the most part, this is formalizing a program of non-enforcement uh, and that most of the sort of benefits that, that come as a result are collateral to that. And so I do think there's a, there's a, a real issue about whether he got the uh, Heckler v. Cheney issue right. Um, Ilya, what do you make of Mike's argument that there may be a silver lining in this opinion for progressives because it will allow them to challenge future Republican presidents' refusal to enforce uh, liberal policies, including arguably the Affordable Care Act? Um, well, I, I think that's right. I mean, that's something that uh, challengers to the law have said in trying to uh, convince progressives uh, not to just, uh, uh, as a knee-jerk, support the president uh, on this issue. You could indeed imagine a, a President Scott Walker uh, having a discretion not to enforce certain parts of, say, the National Labor Relations Act, or a President Rand Paul saying the IRS will, will only enforce up to 
um, you know, half of what the current income tax rates and none of the corporate rates simply because that's how we want to allocate our, our resources. Or, um, you know, uh, President Ted Cruz saying that uh, environmental protection or safety and health standards no longer apply or no longer apply in Texas or something like that. Um, there's, I think, a lot of mischief could be created, a lot of expansion of, of executive power, uh, regardless of, of whose ox is, is being gored. And so I would hope uh, that uh, um, when this uh, legal battle uh, finally terminates, uh, that uh, there will be some uh, sanity restored uh, and rebalancing of the scope of authority between Congress and the President, and indeed in this policy area in immigration, uh, that at least under the next president, uh, who might have some uh, more uh, trust from from Congress, that that whatever party, uh, that that we could actually make some legislative progress in this area. Just one more beat on this, Mike. Uh, Ilya argued in his brief for the Cato Institute that the Obama administration's programs fail the famous test uh, by Justice Jackson in the Youngstown case. Our listeners know that test because we've talked about it before, and that says that the president. Um, his power is at its highest ebb when he asks, acts with the congressional support, at its lowest ebb when he acts in the face of congressional disapproval, and is in a zone of twilight when Congress's intention isn't clear. In this immigration area, which of the three categories do you believe that President Obama is acting in? Yeah, again, so here's another area where I'm not an expert, that is immigration law. I do think it's probably the zone of twilight. Uh, Judge Hainan saw a clear violation of Congress's expressed views. I think mostly what he's seeing is that Congress meant to impose uh, certain limits and make certain actions illegal. But once you stipulate that the president does have some prosecutorial discretion, I think that the statute is not as clear as it might be to be in that uh, area of the president at his lowest ebb in order to say that the president is acting clearly in violation of the statutorily expressed congressional will. Uh, but I, I certainly don't think that uh, he's sort of carrying out Congress's wishes exactly as uh, Congress uh, would have wanted them. Uh, Ilya, uh, is there any, uh, what, what is the best argument for deference to the president in the zone of twilight if uh, there's any plausible argument that he is exercising discretion as opposed to opposing Congress's will? Uh, haven't conservatives long argued that courts should be deferential to executive power? Well, conservatives uh, often get hoisted on their own petards, uh, as do liberals. Uh, lots of people's offices uh, frequently get gored, and, and people find themselves switching political positions. So certainly elected officials do uh, uh, quite a bit. Um, the, this goes back to the, the, the kind of the, the issue lurking under the surface, uh, if you will, is that the idea of deferred action isn't actually in the relevant statutes. It was impliedly found there by uh, executives going back decades, and some of which were kind of laterally uh, ratified or acquiesced to by various Congresses. Uh, but none of these actions have really been challenged in court. And I don't just mean kind of class-based ones, kind of wider-ranging ones, but even case-by-case -case determinations. Uh, and so at a certain point, um, you know, it can't be the case that Congress can, get, can grant the president just plenary discretion to uh, admit whomever he wants, deport whomever he wants, give whatever status uh, that he wants. Um, you can't have the, you know, even write a law saying in the area of immigration, the executive shall have plenary authority, period. 
uh, that would violate the separation of powers, that would violate the, the, the anti-delegation uh, canon. And so um, I think you have to uh, read the, the relevant statute in, in a way that has some sort of limiting principle there. And the, the one that the Office of Legal Counsel that the executive has offered to depend, uh, defend DAPA is essentially that, well, these people that we're giving these temporary statuses to uh, will eventually or could eventually qualify even under existing law. Uh, but that's really broad because under that reading, um, everybody, uh, any, anybody in the country illegally could eventually become a citizen because they can get married. I'm not talking about sham marriages, but real uh, you know, falling in love and, and getting married, that seems to take less time and effort and less chance to it than going through the, the statutory procedural bars for waiting for your child to turn 21, returning to your home country for 10 years, reapplying, etc., etc. So uh, the, the question here, as we've talked about in the Obamacare litigation and in others uh, over the years, uh, the idea of a limiting principle to presidential discretion is, uh, I think, ultimately what's at stake here, whether you frame it in a, uh, a statutory, administrative, or constitutional way. Mike, is this a harbinger of things to come? Will opponents of President Obama challenge a range of executive orders on the grounds that they violate the Administrative Procedure Act or the president's failure to take care of the laws are ex faithfully executed or under other theories? Uh, I think it's certainly possible. Um, it's also possible that it's a harbinger of things to come in future administrations. And I should point out again that, you know, the uh, I find myself largely in agreement with a lot of what Ilya says. Uh, my reason for thinking that uh, liberals and progressives ought to be wary of uh, presidential authority not to enforce the law is not just that, well, the other guys can do it too, but that on the whole, progressives benefit more when the government does stuff, um, or that is they favor the government doing things, whereas small government conservative types prefer that the government not do things. And so a presidential power not to enforce the law is going to systematically benefit the conservative viewpoint and disadvantage the progressive viewpoint. Uh, so it does seem to me that uh, people on my side of this issue who generally support the president and support the aims of, uh, that, that, he, that he's trying to further here ought to be very nervous. It doesn't mean that I necessarily agree that Judge Hannon is right on the law, but I am very concerned about uh, the assertions of executive power. Uh, Ilya, do you feel the same way or differently? No, I think we're in complete agreement uh, on that, and and I'm very concerned as someone who is, as an immigrant myself, uh, you know, like like most immigrants, I do a job that native-born Americans uh, won't, defending the Constitution, and uh, I've long advocated uh, reforming our immigration system in various ways because it's currently a, an often contradictory hodgepodge of nonsensical regulations that, that doesn't benefit anyone other than maybe immigration lawyers and bureaucrats. And what the president has done here is, I think, set back the cause of real comprehensive legislative reform uh, and also harm the people that uh, would even be temporarily uh, would even temporarily benefit from, from the DAPA because they would, in effect, move out of the shadows uh, but under uh, a legal cloud. Uh, some future administration you know, won't claw back their monetary benefits but could certainly not renew the uh, the work permits and the deferred status, and, and we'd be back to square one in a more uh, poisoned 
uh, treacherous uh, a political environment. So I think this um, this action is uh, unfortunate uh, uh, for a matter of policy and politics, in addition to being, um, in my view, illegal. Mike, uh, Ilya has movingly talked about the practical consequences of this decision, uh, both the judicial one and the presidential one, on actual immigrants and their families. Uh, could the president in practice have acted differently if he had gone to Congress to ask for approval of his measures? Would Congress have approved them? No. I mean, I, this, I think, is a point of disagreement I have with Ilya. That is, I, I don't think that Congress's failure to act on comprehensive immigration has anything to do with distrust of President Obama. Uh, it's about the internal divide within the Republican Party about comprehensive immigration reform. The sort of Wall Street wing of the Republican Party favors it. The Tea Party wing opposes it. And they've been unable to move beyond that. And I think that would have been true under any president, Democratic or Republican. You saw, I mean, President uh, George W. Bush also wanted to reform our immigration laws, and he was unable to get members of his own party to go along with him. So I, I don't think this is about the president, although I do think that there are reasons to worry about the, the assertion of non-enforcement authority. But the underlying policy gridlock is a sort of intra-conservative argument that hasn't been resolved. Ilya, a response to that point, that in practice, this was the only way that President Obama could have achieved the immigration reform he sought, well, given congressional intransigence. There are, there are fairly straightforward ways, of, uh, compromises that Democrats could have made as well um, that, that puts some of their interest groups or, or, or base supporters in a pickle in that, for example, I think you would be able to have uh, a comprehensive reform if you lengthened the pathway to citizenship or, or removed it for the first generation. That is, those who are here illegally uh, can stay, uh, get the equivalent of a green card, but will not be eligible to be citizens. I think that would be acceptable, uh, more than acceptable to most uh, uh, illegal aliens because people come here to work and make an honest living, have a better life for their family, not to uh, vote or sit on juries or be forever beholden to the IRS, which are about the only uh, difference between being a permanent resident and, and, and being a citizen. Um, but the, the Democratic Party is not willing to, to give that away because of the, they, they think, uh, probably rightly, that a lot of those uh, votes would go their way, and that's what they are self-interested in. Um, but, you know, this is, all, this is all speculation. I think ultimately it will take some sort of uh, grand compromise where, you know, we kind of de-escalate the cries of uh, amnesty on one side and racism on the other, uh, and realize that the status quo is not uh, benefiting anybody, and it's in fact uh, other than perhaps uh, America's competitors, both strategically and economically. And, and so, um, I think uh, this isn't purely a Republican issue. It, it, the, the reason why this has been is all, immigration has long been uh, so difficult is because it, it cuts across partisan and often ideological lines based on different interests and perceptions, and fundamentally because the American public. Uh, uh, doesn't uh, know exactly what's going on in this area because they have no incentive uh, to know, to figure out exactly, to know about what the uh, complicated uh, regulations are, that there is, for example, no line to get into, as it were. Uh, you can't just uh, apply because you think you're qualified or somebody wants to give you a job, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a, it's a very difficult policy area that uh, doesn't track you know, left-right or intra-Republican or intra-Democrat disagreements on uh, on other issues. Great. Well, back to the Constitution and the judicial 
opinion, uh, Mike, what are the next steps and practical consequences of this decision? President Obama can get around it by holding a six-month notice and comment period, but there'll be future legal challenges which could go up to the Supreme Court. So take us through what could happen over the next six months or a year. So if they decide to go the notice and comment route, as you say, that would be a delay of uh, many months. Uh, even if it succeeds and they get through exactly the same policy that they are uh, doing through the informal guidance, there is no guarantee that that would then be upheld by the courts. Indeed, I read Judge Hannon's ruling as essentially signaling that he's using this narrow ground now, but if he were asked to rule on the full merits, that is, if he had to rule on the full merits, he would be prepared to say that the policy is unlawful because it exceeds the scope of authority that Congress delegated to the president. So I, I think the administration might uh, go the notice and comment route as a kind of backup, but their first line of attack is going to be to seek uh, some form of expedited or emergency review, first in the Fifth Circuit, and then if that fails, in the Supreme Court. Uh, and, you know, it's sort of anybody's guess what will happen there. I, I guess I think that there are, there are many ways the administration can lose. One way they can lose, as Ilya said earlier, is that they could just lose because they run out of time, right? If the Supreme Court agrees to take the case but doesn't decide it until next term, that would be June 2016 by the time, you know, we're well into a presidential election. Um, and uh, they could also lose on the merits. The Supreme Court sided with the federal government for the most part in an immigration case involving Arizona a couple of years ago, uh, but the issues here are somewhat different. Uh, so I, I think they are in a, in a bit of a, a bind here, uh, and I think that's part of the reason why you haven't seen Attorney General Holder uh, or the president come out forcefully and say, this is what we're going to do, because I think they don't really have any very good options. Ilya, your uh take on what will happen over the next uh, year, um, please. Yeah, I agree with that, uh, kind of the timing and, and identifying the factors uh, that are the, the strategic factors that I'm sure are being discussed within the government now. I'm actually surprised that an emergency motion for stay or expedited appeal wasn't filed the same day or I guess the day after since the um, the opinion came out at about 11 p.m. on, on the holiday Monday um, that the government wasn't ready to go. Because I, I read the transcript uh, of the hearing. The government obviously was there at the hearing. Uh, and so uh, the, the, the ruling should have come as no surprise, and I thought that they would have different uh, types of uh, paperwork uh, almost all set to go. Um, but either through hubris or just deciding that uh, uh, to wait an extra few days uh, was worth it to improve their filing, um, I think we will see uh, movement at the at the Fifth Circuit, uh, whether on banc or just as a panel. The Fifth Circuit, by the way, the, the appellate court that will take this appeal is the most conservative or at least most uh, weighted towards Republican appointees of any of the circuits uh, in the country at about a two-to-one ratio. Uh, so more likely than not, this, this opinion will eventually be upheld. I think that it won't reach the Supreme Court this term. Some people have said, well, they're, you know, I don't think the Supreme Court is going to chomp at the bit to take it, and there's no real urgency on the government side. The government's not harmed for delaying a policy. No other federal laws are tied to it, that, that, that sort of thing. So I think we could see briefing over the summer uh, after a Fifth Circuit ruling with uh, an argument perhaps in a special hearing in September, as we had with Citizens United uh, five and a half years ago, with an opinion maybe by the end of the year. I don't know if they'll draw it out through the entirety of the next term, but the government is indeed uh, in a bit of a pickle now. 
Um, but I think based on the how the hearing went um, uh, last month, uh, they should have expected it, and I'm sure their uh, appellate strategy is well underway. And uh, time for closing arguments, gentlemen, and I'm going to ask the obvious question. Uh, Mike, if and when the Supreme Court decides to hear the case, how do you think it will rule and on what grounds? Uh, so let me preface this by saying that uh, I have a terrible track record of predicting what the Supreme Court will do. <laughs> uh, so um, I'll say that uh, I'm going to hedge and say if they rule for the government, it'll be on the ground that this is fundamentally agency inaction, not reviewable under Heckler against Cheney. If they rule for the state challengers, they will rule on these relatively narrow grounds that Judge Hainan did. Let me just, uh, I realize this isn't exactly what you asked, but I want to float one more possibility. Uh, even though I said the government is in a pickle, they may be in a, uh, a good position politically uh, because losing here from a conservative uh, Republican appointed judge while Congress is going at the president hammer and tong over this uh, could enable the Democrats to use the immigration issue effectively in the next presidential and congressional elections in 2016. Uh, and it would surprise me if people in the sort of political side of the White House hadn't figured that out and weren't taking that into account in deciding what their next move is. Uh, fascinating. Ilya, your closing arguments, if and when the Supreme Court takes the case, how will they rule and on what grounds? Um, you know, my predictions also are, are worth what, what you and the listeners are, are paying for them. Um, uh, I think given the, the, the Roberts incrementalism and minimalism, I, I do think that uh, the eventual ruling uh, could simply say that uh, the Administrative Procedure Act was not followed. Go and have your notice and comment rulemaking, uh, and that would be uh, almost, a, almost a unanimous ruling I, I could see uh, going. If they wanted to reach out and, and, and do more broadly and just uh, affirm uh, Judge Hainan here, uh, in, in the way that he ruled, that this kind of goes beyond the discretion of the um, uh, of the government, that that would be probably a, probably a five to four. Although uh, Mike mentioned the Arizona versus United States case, um, there were only four provisions that came before the Supreme Court. Most of it was in effect, and of those four, the federal government uh, won on three of them. The one that it lost on, however, and it lost unanimously was the poster child uh, uh, of that uh, SB 1070, the show me your papers, please, regulation. So the Supreme Court can certainly uh, surprise, even if we think, uh, you know, we understand uh, the, the legal realism, not to be confused with the regal legalism, which is, I suppose, what the case is all about. Wonderful. Well, Mike Dorf and Ilya Shapiro, thank you for taking a complex and technical opinion bringing it to life, showing its practical consequences, and illuminating the constitutional and legal issues that it raises. And thanks also for being part of our great Coalition Freedom Advisory Board. Please join us for the next of our We the People constitutional podcast. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen. <laughs>